This is an ABC podcast. Panel operator knee has pressed the play button and that means we are underway for the minefield uh, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Um, I feel that very few things answer to that particular sentence like the topic we are about to discuss today. Welcome, I should say, to the last episode of The Minefield for this year. I was just hoping I'd build suspense and maybe you'd think I was about to say ever. I mean, it might be. I don't know. They don't tell me. They have meetings without me. And then anyway, this is an off-air point. I shouldn't be saying it to you. Um, Welcome. Uh, I think we're doing best ofs next week and beyond so you'll be able to listen back to shows we've done through the year but this is our last show of at least new original content for the year well it is my name scott stevens is my co-host it probably has been to the meetings that are relevant to all of this um today could be fun yeah i think so i think so like for the end of the year show we've tended to try to come up with something that captures a theme for the year Mm -hmm. this this is a bit different though this year isn't it i feel like we've kind of abandoned the idea of trying to summarise the year in a show, mm. we've just really lent into the season mm. and, well uh, yes, That's fished nice out company. this particular topic. And, and and for that reason, I have to say, I'm a little bit at a disadvantage here because, uh, I mean, Christmas, I guess, I, well, you know what, I am going to go to Christmas because my uh, mother-in-law is hosting. But Christmas mm. isn't a thing for me. Like, I didn't, I don't celebrate it. We never did it at my house. So, so I just kept hearing people talk about Christmas. And one of the things that I, you know, and sorry, and the only other thing I knew about Christmas was everything was shut and no one was available to do anything. So it was just a very boring day of the year that I had to survive somehow. Uh, It was like being in lockdown, really, Mm. um, for a day. Until about four o'clock when all my friends came out with their new toys and decided they'd show them off. That was about it. But one of the things that the common threads of Christmas I found, which takes us directly to the topic today, is so much of the talk about Christmas in person is talk of annoyance. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to go get this. Everyone has a joke or a snide remark to make about their drunk uncle. For some reason, there's always a drunk uncle in every Christmas gathering. Mm. It seems to be something that, and I'm sure this is not true, like uh, I'm sure this is a um, an oversimplification, but it feels like when people talk to me about their forthcoming Christmas, it's something to be endured. That's right. I, in fact, well, that I was just about to say it is a season to be endured, not exactly enjoyed. That can't be right, though. Yeah, can it's it? It, it's not. Look, it is complicated. And can I say, Christmas was never part of my upbringing either. Ah, what's your excuse? I mean, I've got a very obvious excuse. Yeah, mine was the persistent and ongoing rebellion on the part of my family towards anything that smacked of either paganism or the commodification of otherwise holy or sacred things. Uh, yeah. So I didn't do Christmas because I'm not Christian. Yeah. You didn't do Christmas because you were very Christian. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly right. And okay. so so December was a great big nothing uh, for us. And, you know, that was very much in line with all sorts of other social things that were avoided uh, and that ended up being great big nothings. I'm, I mean, I'm sure I've told you, I'm not sure if our listeners realize, but the vast majority of my childhood was spent in a certain solitude. Uh, my parents resisted religious gatherings because they were too compromised. Uh, my parents resisted school. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first experience of a classroom was in university. It was intoxicating. I couldn't imagine anything more thrilling than being in a room with what I believed to be, what I thought to be, eager to learn like-minded persons who were there hanging on the lecturer's every breath. Um, little did I realize that, you know, they were far more bored than I was. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, and now we see a touching echo in our listeners. That's right. <laughs> so, so look, I mean, for, for me, you know, Christmas now is a kind of double-sided vocation. Uh, it's the service that we are to our extended family. And so, you know, for me, the lead up to Christmas is spent with copious amounts of um, kind of preparation and gift giving, which I, I mean, I, I do quite like that. I like that there's a day of the year that for whatever reasons, whatever motives, base or noble, we turn ourselves inside out in this glorious extended display of careless sociability 
and sheer generosity. I think there's something about that that is meant to kind of keep our social muscles warm so that we have the wherewithal to do it, uh, the moral Except wherewithal. If, if we're grumbling about it so much. Yeah, which we shouldn't. Which, yeah, we really shouldn't grumble about it quite as much as, as we do. But then the day itself, I mean, you know me well enough, Waleed. I don't like a great deal of company. I don't like a whole lot of people. Uh, and so I tend to spend <laughs> Christmas. I just like, I mean, yes, we've known this for yeah, a while. Yeah. And I, I spend Christmas in the just... kitchen. I spend it in the sure. kitchen preparing food for people. That's, that's I just my... never heard you express it in such an unvarnished way. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's quite yeah. amusing. I show them that I love them by preparing things for them so I don't have to feel like I love them. That's kind of my... Right. It's a okay. performance of, of, of adoration. But look, right. You're, you're right that for many people, there is something about the family gamut going from home to home. I mean, if you're unfortunate enough to have a broken family, then it's additionally difficult going from home to home and straddling the, the very difficult negotiations of the handoff and the right amounts of time and not wanting to show up the other parent and everything else. Um, and I think one of the other things about Christmas, of course, is that whereas friends can rely on a certain base degree of commonality. There can often be no commonality whatsoever with the members of family, uh, apart from the fact, it should be said, that those relationships will go on uh, in one form or another, which means that you're going to restrain yourself saying what you really might feel. You're going to hold your tongue when it comes to telling someone what you really believe about whatever opinions it is they're giving voice to. So there's something about Christmas that you're thrown into. It is a kind of confrontation with people with whom you might have very little else to do. And it also may be that this is the most diverse company, ideologically, politically, ethically, that you're going to be thrown into at any stage during the year, given the fact that for many of us, we've tended to self-segregate to a degree where we really only hang around with people that share certain base level political or moral convictions. Um, so there's something about Christmas, yes, it's to be endured because of the sheer frenetic nature of the lead up to it and because of the intensity of the day, the sheer number of things that need to be done. But there's also something morally instructive about Christmas, how it is we negotiate the sheer diversity of the company that we're thrown in the middle of. Can I, sorry, can I yeah. just pause here? Isn't this a sad reflection? You talk about the sheer diversity of the company. It's not that. It's like, not that diverse. <laughs> no. No, it's not. It's still your family. Like you're actually genetically connected to them. Well, probably have a, a lot apart, in common. Apart from the useless people that they married. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there are those elements of it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when I think of really diverse places, this is a you know I don't want to go too far down this road because it's a different show. Mm. But I, this is one of the reasons I marvel at football clubs. Because I think football clubs, and here I'm thinking particularly of, say, Australian Rules football clubs, are just about the most diverse gatherings in our mm. society. Mm. And you're, and you're bound, you're say, bound no, together by a common object of love. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I know that the sort of trendy or fashionable view of football clubs is to say they're actually narrow cast. It's all, you know, white male hegemony or something like that. It's I just don't think it's true, actually. Like when I look at just the range of backgrounds that get gathered within a football club, because there's something that's not, well, it's not entirely objective, is it? But it's closer to objective about whether or not someone's good at the sport. Hmm. It brings people together that would have no reason otherwise to be together. And I, you know, I look at, say, a football club I support and I pick three players and I was like, there is no other circumstance in life that could bring these three players together. Hmm. <laughs> it just couldn't happen. Hmm. That strikes me as diverse. Families, I know there's, you know, differences of opinion about stuff, but really? And then I think about, I wonder how much of this is a contemporary Western phenomenon. Mm. Because admittedly, there's a very different circumstance because my almost entire family, uh, really apart from my mother and my brother, that's it. But my entire family, apart from that, oh, I've got one cousin who's in Australia. But apart from that, everyone's in Egypt. Hmm. So it means I don't see them very often. But we're trying to negotiate language barriers and all sorts of things because my Arabics look great. So, you know, their English, some have really good English, some have barely any. I think the, the range of people there, yeah, they're very diverse, but there's never a sense of there being anything other than uh, 
total love and fidelity to one another. Interesting. In those ga- I just don't ever see it. Yeah. There's a sense, and I know this from like having landed in Egypt and they don't know me or, they, you know, when I'd barely met them and I'm suddenly enveloped with this almost axiomatic love, hmm. right? Hmm. Now, I don't know if it would change if I were to go and do something they regarded as scandalous or whatever, but they, it's almost like there's not a question. It's like, oh, you're family, therefore, this is what follows from that. Do other, you know, so the, is it the conversations we're talking about around Christmas and putting up with each other and all that, do you, are these confined to Western societies? I don't know. Quite possibly. And let me say why. Confined I th- is too strong a word, sorry. I, I mean, are they disproportionately expressed in okay. Western societies? Let's, let's try putting it this way. And I think even though it's been a little bit circuitous, I think you've actually delivered us really nicely to the topic at hand. It is fair to say, and this has been part of the fo- philosophy of friendship, going right back to Aristotle, that friendship requires something fundamental in common or it requires admiration. I mean, friendship is predicated on equality, but there nonetheless is this kind of reciprocity of admiration that takes place between friends. There is something in the other person that you admire that makes you overlook the things that other people might find unbearably annoying. Um, This is actually one of the really interesting things, by the way. Two people who have the same friend don't love that friend for the same reasons. There's a singularity about friendship that I think is almost unfathomable. Um, You love a friend because of something very specific, very peculiar about that friend. And that same specific quality, that same aspect might be unbearably annoying to somebody else. In other words, that may be the thing that uh, somebody loves that friend, say, despite that particular character trait. So there's something singular about friendship, but it always requires, I think, it needn't be total agreement. In fact, I would say it's almost never total agreement, but there has to be some fundamental principle. There has to be a common object of either admiration or love. There has to be a kind of binding quality of reciprocity that keeps the two of you together despite the things that otherwise might separate you. And I think one of the things that we've become less and less tolerant of is the fact of real disagreement between those friends or say disagreement about something that matters. So I I would imagine, Willie, that you have very dear friends around whom there's a shared object of love for football but that mm-hmm. they might say, I mean, do you have any Collingwood friends, for instance? Yeah. Okay. Is that a bridge too far? I mean, is it's, it? it's almost beyond the pale. It's almost beyond the pale. All right. Mm. Um, but I think there's, there's that base level of love. And then there come those things where the points of disagreement are such that those disagreements persist within the context of friendship. And they give a kind of sharpness to the friendship that otherwise wouldn't be there. I actually think disagreement should be or ought to be one of the conditions of possibility of friendship, precisely because the other person is someone who is not you, to whom you are answerable in a way that you are not answerable to anybody else. But but also with whom you're far freer. Yes. To, yeah. That's exactly right. Um, And yet you're also restrained in what it is you want to say. You can't simply insult that person as a way of winning or getting a leg up in an argument because you there's something about that friendship that's precious enough that's valuable enough that you want the friendship to persist i think one but of the you, but, but you also you you probably can go closer to insulting them yes i think that's that that's right certainly more than you would say a partner an intimate uh oh that depends i think on the, I, I think there are some intimate relationships that work yes i think you're really right. well in that sort of way where the sort of directness is part of the charm of the relationship or whatever makes, yeah, makes nice. it work. Okay. But what I, what I mean is I can be blunt with my mate because the question of animosity is not in play. Hmm. Interesting. So in other words, there's no, he's not reading my intentions because he's, he knows. The goodwill is there. Yeah. It's established. Yeah, that's, a, that's a better way of putting it. Hmm. Yeah. So that then frees up, that creates degrees of freedom, right? You can now be frank. Part of our problem, and we've discussed... Well, yeah, I suppose this show is thematic of the year in a way, isn't it? Because we've been discussing this thing of how we engage with and live alongside those with whom we 
vehemently disagree and this phenomenon of polarisation as we've diagnosed in our quarterly essay contempt within society is sort of like a growing way of doing business, et cetera. Mm. One of the things about that, I think, is that everything becomes such a slight because we're talking to each other as abstractions, really. Mm. Mm. So there is no glue that provides the freedom for frankness. That's frankness right. quickly becomes a fence. What worries me or perhaps arrests me is that we might think in similar terms or have similar conversations about family. Yeah, interesting. Surely that's where the degrees of freedom should be greatest. Okay, okay. I think you're absolutely right. Can we just do one more step before we get there, though? Yeah. So there is something that Robert Talese, uh, the political philosopher from Vanderbilt University, we've had, on, had him on the show a couple of times this year, really wonderful democratic theorist, I think. One of the things he pointed out to us in the first show that we did together back in August, I think, was that, you know, we talk a lot, and rightly so, we talk a lot about negotiating radical differences among political opponents. How do we maintain the conditions of a common democratic life with those with whom we radically, radically disagree? Um, but one of the things that Robert Talese pointed out to us is that just as central to democratic politics now is how we negotiate good, rich, robust forms of disagreement among our allies. And one of the problems in so much political debate is that our allies have become increasingly homogenous. Uh, the things that bind us together are precisely all of those claims about which there is no dispute among us. And so in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk about our enemies, in the way that we talk about the things that motivate us, in the way that we talk about the things that infuriate us, we get locked in this echo chamber whereby our views become increasingly reinforced and therefore increasingly extreme. Whereas if we had more allies that stand right on the brink of what it is we might find acceptable, if we had more allies that provide us more, more counterpoints, uh, calling us to account, calling us to, as Raymond Gaeta puts it, calling us to moral seriousness, that would then provide us with, I think, a greater sense of the virtues that we need to respond rightly to those disagreements, to respond rightly to those really serious moments of frankness, uh, of seriousness that ask us to own what it is we say and own the consequences for what it is we believe. As it turns out, because our friends or because our political allies have tended to be homogenous when it comes to things that we believe matter most, the company in which we find the greatest degree of diversity, in other words, the greatest amount of ideological difference about things that matter most, tend to be our family. What then is interesting about that is that we can't simply at this time of year, uh, or if we have regular family gatherings, we can't simply relate to them at a distance. We can't simply disagree with them as if they were simply unreal avatars. Uh, so it becomes... Impassioned. That's it can't be dispassionate. It can't be dispassionate, but it also can't be a free-for-all because we're there in the same room. We're seeing the ways that their face might register pain, confusion, exasperation, anger even. And we can't say what we want to say because, you know, as if this were simply a free, a free speech free-for-all, um, because there's something about that relationship that we want or maybe we need to have persist. And so it provides us, I think, these kind of gatherings, these provide us a kind of hothouse for the virtues and vices that undergird good disagreements versus bad disagreements. How it is and we should we come to them kind of malformed in that. That's regard. right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hence this show, hence this Yeah, well, I guess episode. so, because we, I mean, in our quarterly essay, there's a reference to a particular article that was published on the SBS website mm. a few years ago, probably said many years ago now. Um, it was something like, I can't remember the exact title now. How to avoid but disagreements it, this Christmas. No, no, it wasn't that. It was how how to survive your conservative relatives. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, there you go. Which I found really, I found that interesting in two ways. One was, what exactly is the business of a national broadcaster like SBS publishing a piece that presupposes the annoyance... Of conservatives. Of cons yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the, the conservatives are annoying. Right? I mean, you know, if you're a commercial outlet or whatever, that's one thing. But, like, 
it's a national broadcaster. You would think. Anyway, um, so that I found odd. But that as a trope, right, the idea, how am I going to survive my insert political persuasion here relative, that's a new conversation, mm. isn't it? But mm. newish. That's not something I remember being a conversation from my childhood. It was probably more the drunk uncle thing, right? It's their behaviour is just intolerable. They're running around, you know, spitting in people's faces because you know how drunk people get really close to you sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, they're doing all that. They're saying inappropriate things or, you know, whatever. It was more that. It was more behavioural. Now it's become a worldview-based thing. And clearly that speaks to something about increased political polarisation. But... I think it also speaks to something about how we live in societies where our political differences don't seem to be buffered by a political space yes, very much. Yes, nicely said. Beautiful. So that we now come to these things where political disagreements feel more of a threat or they're more discomforting or um, they're a bit more existential. And for that reason, I mean, having an existential problem within your family that's a very difficult situation to be in because mm. you, you can't just walk away. And so it's interesting that so much of the language is about survival. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I do. Um, it, it's not how do I manage it or, you know, what's the best response. It's like, how do I survive? Um, there's a kind of, I know it's dramatic and sensationalist effect, but, but there's something there about how existential these things have come, to, have come to be seen. Yes, and I think there's also one other thing that goes along with it, and that's that partisan needling provocation for provocation's sake, Um, as it's sometimes referred to in the United States, making liberals cry. Mm. Um, That has become an acceptable form of personal enjoyment or of online entertainment. And I, I, I just think there is nothing about that that's virtuous. You know, I mean, many of us have friends or have members of our family that we refer to as, you know, the people who are who go around picking a fight for fight's sake, who enjoy dropping a bomb in the middle of a conversation then watch everyone kind of shocked by the way that it explodes. Agents of chaos. Agents of chaos, thank They're you. They're the joker. Um, but now there's a great deal of that. It's, it's a provocation without answerability. It's provocation without responsiveness. These are forms of enjoyment and I think of self-assertion. Uh, I mean, you'd even want to call it sort of self-love in the sense of almost a kind of malformed egotism that I find uh, not just being continually cultivated in our online habits and spaces, but also antisocial and anti-democratic in a way that becomes really pronounced in these kinds of environments. So what we wanted to do in the lead up to Christmas, it's just around the corner, We talked a lot about disagreement this year. How do we do disagreements? What do disagreements tell us about us? What do disagreements tell us about the people with whom we disagree? When are disagreements virtuous or what are the virtues that can attend to disagreement? What are the vices that begin rearing their ugly heads in the context of disagreement? And we're doing all of that, I think, on the understanding in the context that these aren't disagreements that are taking place in the abstract or with avatars. These are disagreements that are taking place with other people with whom we either are thrown into a kind of relationship or with whom we want that relationship for one reason or another to persist. And that sounds like a pretty minefield way of approaching Christmas, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, (laughs) it's certainly more than jingle bells. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, so I'll give you that. Um, By the way, I did find the reference uh, and the article was from 2013 and it was titled How to Survive Your Your Conservative Relatives This Christmas. So even the expression of that, I mean, I know that's that's a headline. Um, It probably wasn't written by the author of the comment piece, but your conservative relative, it presupposes that the only people who could possibly be reading this <laughs> aren't conservative, mm. which is fascinating for SBS, which is set up, of course, to service migrant communities who probably are quite conservative in a lot of ways. Yeah. Hey, um, Unless it's directed at the kids of migrants on the assumption that they're progressive while their relatives are not. 
I, I don't know. That's um, fascinating. Speaking briefly of disagreement mm. in the quarterly essay, we, we did. Oh, um, yeah. mo- most people who've read the essay would know that we kind of concluded by drawing the analogy between democracy and marriage. There's something we didn't do in the essay that's probably worth pointing out here, especially in the context of surviving your conservative relatives. Um, John Stuart Mill had this really uh, enlarged and I think enlarging conception of marriage as moral community and as moral community that's analogous to a democratic community. And he says that one of the ways in which marriage reaches its proper moral conditions is when each member of that particular relationship is afforded the luxury, that's his term, afforded the luxury of looking up one to the other. And each enjoys the opportunity to lead the other in turn. I think there's something about that. The idea that within a marriage, uh, equality is right but it's not quite radical enough. It's the idea of being able to variously look up to one another and take turns leading the other. Um, The idea that that's precisely the kind of thing that takes place in the metronome tick-tock of one side of politics and another, taking turns leading the way, giving the opportunity to see the world through their particular moral valence, to see the world through the particular uh, moral coloration. Uh, that sheds light on certain values, certain pursuits, certain goals, certain ends. I think there's something about that, as we tried to argue in the essay, that isn't completely inapplicable to what ought to take place within a democracy. Surviving our conservative relatives, I think the opportunity to see the world through their eyes ought to be something, you're right, even if it's uncomfortable at times, ought to be absolutely welcomed. Yeah, it's a bigger ask in a democracy than it is in marriage. Of course. Although when you're applying it in the context of family, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit close up with the analogies, a little tighter. Anyway, um, we should bring our guest in, shall we not? Yes, please. Excellent. Our guest is Laura Kotevska. She's a lecturer in education in the office of the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, and she's a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Sydney. Laura, thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. Hi, Scott. Hi, Waleed. So what How's are... your family, Laura? I want to get this out of the way first. <laughs> Look, um, I have great love for my family. It was interesting when you talked about your own Walid. Um, I realised that I am an expert on this topic in so many ways, the topic of disagreement. Um, what I didn't realise is that my experience of Christmas would make me an expert on your show. Um, so I grew up Macedonian Orthodox, which meant that I celebrated Christmas on December the 25th mm. in the Catholic tradition and also on January 7th. So on any given year, I had two Christmases rather than oh, wow. one nun. Um, so not an expected way in which I thought I would be an expert on your show, but there we have it. Excellent. And can I ask you this before we get into the, the heavy stuff? Is your experience of family similar to mine? Um, similar experiences of going back to Macedonia and meeting family for the first time. And as you rightly described it, being enveloped um, by love. But What was interesting is that in the case of my family, those were the conditions that enabled really interesting conversations. I think the way that you put it was that that was always um, the first thing that you experienced, and I did too, and that was precisely what made um, having interesting conversations possible. Yeah, that's the degrees of freedom that it provides. Anyway, Scott, I've gotten in the way. What would you like to do? So, Laura, one of the many reasons we wanted to have you on the show wasn't just because of, you know, mixed or complicated family gatherings. Um, You've done some really interesting work on the ethics, the virtues and vices of disagreement all through the prism of a 17th century uh, treatise on logic and thinking by Antoine Arnaud and Pierre Nicole. I found that particular text difficult to read because of the visceral hatred for Montaigne, whom I happen to love. But what made the text glorious in so many ways is its surgical dissection of the forms of self-love, pride, arrogance, and the protection of reputation that go into the things that we believe, that we say we believe, and the reason why we try to resist the opinions of others. So I wonder if you could begin maybe by helping us work through people fall into error according to this text by Arnaud and Nicole. People fall into error either through misperception of the outside world or because of a certain 
a certain moral deformation in the inner world, the extent to which self-love has come to take over the way in which we hold and come to frame our opinions. Why don't you pick us up at that point? That's a really excellent starting point. I was struck by this in your opening remarks, in fact, um, when you said that one of the things that we notice in our arguments with others is provocation for provocation's sake. And this is um, this is something that the Port Royalists, so Antoine Arnaud and Pierre Nicole worked in a convent outside of Paris called Port Royal. We often refer to them as Port Royalists. Um, so the Port Royalists, 350 years ago, showed that one of the vices of the mind is um, a quarrelsomeness or an argumentativeness that emerges from this um, feeling, what you called a malformed um, egotism. This was a vice 350 years ago and continues to be a a vice today. And this hubris um, that people can have um, deforms our disagreements in a number of ways. So it can cause us to be quarrelsome. It can cause us to be overconfident as an overconfident person in a disagreement, you can believe that you're correct at all costs. And when you have this trait, you're less likely to be the kind of person who reflects on their reasons for believing a certain thing. Um, You're less likely to listen to others and you're less likely to um, take seriously the reasons that people offer for the beliefs that they have. Equally, you can be the kind of person who believes that they are correct merely in virtue of being that person who's in possession of that belief. Um, And the effect of that is to simply discount the beliefs of others because they don't have them. I mean, in in some ways, it's a very, very early articulation of something like confirmation bias. So this vice that Arno and Nicole recognised 350 years ago, um, this vice of self-love where we take ourselves to be true in virtue of it being us that has those beliefs, ensures that our beliefs are poorly justified. Can I just pick Equally, you up? Can I just pick you up on that sure. uh, on that point though? Sure. I mean, that that I think is all fairly uncontroversial or at least it it should be for most people. But I think there's a, a kind of social dimension to wrong beliefs or to say fundamental error, um, being in error and therefore being resistant to someone else showing you up or someone else trying to uh, convince you of something different. There, there's a social dimension to that, which is, uh, okay, you mentioned I may believe something so fully, so truly that I just can't hear uh, any other argument. Or it could simply be that I am so utterly resistant to the idea of having to back down from what it is that I say I believe. It doesn't even matter if that belief is sincere. So true and sincere is my desire to protect my reputation, (laughs) to protect my self-conception, that the idea of backing down from what it is that I say that I believe becomes almost unimaginable. The inverse of that is so objectionable, so loathsome is the other person who's trying to convince me of their belief that even if I was convinced otherwise that what they're saying is true, I can never imagine myself being in a position where I could bring myself to agree with them, much less tell them that I agree with them. So there it's disagreement or, or it's, it's error, not simply because of the sincerity or depth of one's conviction, but because of social standing or one standing in one's own, one's own eyes or a very low or contemptuous view of the person who's trying to convince you otherwise. That the two sides of that, the social dimension, that I think is what scares me more than almost anything else. Um, look, I this is another way of couching, I think, Arno and Nicole's description of the epistemic vice of hubris. I think that in addition to the bias of believing ourselves to be correct and overconfidence in our own views, the kind of vanity that causes us to believe ourselves to be true is also this this desire to win arguments at all costs. And at that point, I think 
Arno and Nicole say the greatest worry and the worst epistemic effect that that produces is that individuals stop caring about reasons. I mean, the Port Royal logic um, is devoted to not just showing us the errors that we make in our reasoning, but also showing us how we can acquire the knowledge and the truth. And what worries Arno and Nicole about disagreement is the fact that it can derail us from our search for truth in virtue of these ways in which we are formed. So the the vices that we have, the passions that we're subject to. One of the worries that Arno and Nicole have about disagreement is that it precludes us in the search for truth because the ways that we interact with each other when we disagree causes us to have feelings, um, the way we would now describe passions, that derail our search for truth. We can get angry, we can get distempered, um, we can find ourselves frustrated, and those feelings make it impossible for us to focus on the real things at issue, which are the reasons that we have for our beliefs and communicating those to our interlocutors. Um, I mean, one of the things that I hope comes out in this discussion is that Arno and Nicole, in some ways, they have some sanguine views about the possibility of disagreement being epistemically valuable, and they list a number of conditions that allow us um, to make disagreement epistemically valuable, um, and also some of the benefits that we could accrue from our disagreements. But they also say, look, if disagreement were an unalloyed good, we'd see philosophers agreeing with each other more often than they do. So their descriptive claim is that disagreement can go awry. It can cause us to divert from the search for truth. And for this reason, um, we should be wary when we enter disagreements. Yeah. What we're describing, it seems, is that very often the way we go about disagreement and the importance that we attach to our own opinions is tainted by ego. So that there's, you know, there's an egotistical driver to all of this. And to some extent, that is just part of the human condition. You know, humans have this battle with the ego ever since they've been alive. But I do wonder whether or not there's something particular about our societies in this regard, in that they are set up to drive us in this direction. You know, the way we think about ideas, right? Ideas now for us, if we are to be, you know, fully self-actualized and self-realized people within our societies or citizens even within our societies, ideas are not to be received. They are to be interrogated and then you read, you know, you figure out what your opinion is on something, right? And what comes along with that then is in some cases and in some arenas more than others, pressure to form a view on everything, mm a kind of derision of those who either don't or simply just decide to defer to authority on views, with some exceptions, like perhaps on things like science, although even then we're seeing that breakdown. Mm. Right? Um, I was talking to someone recently who is, comes from a sort of non-Western background. I just made a really interesting observation. He said, I, I found when I'm talking to Westerners, they have enormous egos not in their interactions, like they might be very humble in the way they talk, but when you start talking about anything epistemic, it's just all them. Mm. <laughs> like the, their self as an individual self occupies all of the space. And so everything that you might want to put or discuss, whatever, it gets filtered through, does this do anything for me, etc. And it was interesting listening to you say that because I thought, I mean, I've, you know, was born here and I've lived my whole life here. I, I, was just, I just thought, yeah, I can't actually conceive of another way of thinking about epistemic claims other than for it to be something that goes around the self, right? And that is, I suppose, an egotistical posture, which we don't perceive as such because it just seems natural to us in societies like this. But I don't know, once you have that, surely the end point is that more and more and more people will find themselves in this position of intransigence because there is this connection now between epistemology, ego, identity, etc. And so one of the reasons I don't want to change my mind is it changes who I am. Hmm. The ego is so implicit now 
in the opinions that we hold or the views that we have. Uh, Laura, I apologise for that rant. You can issue your broadside. A broadside? Oh, I won't go that far. But um, <laughs> there is a, look, there's a lot to pick up in what you just said. Um, the interesting thing about looking at a text from 350 years ago, I really hope I've done the math right on that one, um, <laughs> is that these are these are texts that diagnose conditions very similar to our own. The reason why I think this is a fruitful text to look at is that the the diagnoses are very similar. The remedies are maybe things that we can explore. So Arno and Nicole offer a number of suggestions in a therapeutic guise. They think that um, one of the goals of their um, textbook on logic is that it allows us to train our minds. It allows us to acquire the rules for thinking well. Um, and this is a long course of training the mind such that we are able to offer the reasons that we have for our beliefs and form them in the right way um, and avoid areas of reasoning that can derail our search for truth. There, there are a number of ways that we can help our arguments to go better. And I think that this attends to what you were saying about the feeling that if we concede that we are wrong, um, we are deficient in some way. I mean, this is something that they talk about when they talk about some of the challenges of disagreement. This tendency towards self-love makes it impossible for, makes it difficult for us to concede um, when we're incorrect. And yet that, or, or just when our arguments are on shaky ground. And yet those are precisely the things that we ought to do with interlocutors in the search for truth, um, because then we're removing ourselves from the discussion and focusing solely on reasons. Um, to that end, they encourage us to be intellectually honest. So if we're in a disagreement, if we're just in a discussion um, and we find ourselves actually recognising that we don't have the best reasons for our beliefs, the best thing that we could do is be honest in that context. Equally, I think we need to suspend our judgments, um, including making judgments of our interlocutors, until we can be certain that we're correct. They invite us to be fair-minded and impartial and objective in our assessments of arguments. I mean, we ought not to be invested in an argument because it's our own. We ought to be invested um, in the reasons that we have for our beliefs because we believe them to be the right ones. And to the extent that we can demonstrate these intellectual virtues, our disagreements are going to go better. At the very same time, they acknowledge that failure to exercise these intellectual virtues um, will result in our disagreements going poorly. And I think that it's important to recognise the normative dimension of their project. Disagreements will go well to the extent that ourselves and our interlocutors have trained themselves to have good disagreements and exercise those traits when they um, undertake to disagree with someone. The absence of these virtues makes disagreement go very poorly and you might argue isn't epistemically productive. It can be in many ways epistemically harmful. I think there's an interesting question here, which is, well, ought we to engage in disagreement at all costs? I mean, I've just said that disagreement can be therapeutic in a number of ways. It can help us exercise these virtues and it can help us search after truth. And I don't think that we ought to disagree at all costs. I don't think Arno and Nicole would argue that either. In fact, in their view, communication can only take place when we communicate well with each other when we take into account the antecedent experiences of our interlocutors, the feelings that they bring to the discussion and the ways that they stand to gain or lose through a disagreement. Mm -hmm. And it seems really important to say that, you know, when, when you're in a disagreement and people are prejudiced and offensive, they're marginalising or unkind, it's not the kind of context in which one can be epistemically enriched and it's not there's no moral or epistemic obligation to be in a disagreement of that form since well neither party is devoted to the search for truth they have other goals but that directs us that takes us straight to the christmas example right because isn't that the scenario that people are in perhaps in a coded way describing when they talk about having to deal with that relative at christmas it's that that's the approach they're taking they're saying things that are just outrageous with no concern for 
how you feel or what's even right and just and true, etc. So how am I meant to respond? And that's the thing I need to survive. Yeah. So I suppose, you know. Or there's, or there's something else, which is I'm trying to convince this person whose beliefs on climate change or racial justice or uh, fair and equitable taxation systems uh, is so intransigent, is so illogical. I'm doing everything I can to try to bring them around to my way of seeing things. And it's like, well, as Wittgenstein put it, it's like my spade has hit bedrock and it turns and there's nothing else that I can do. I've run out of justifications. I've run out of things to convince. And I think one of the things that this highlights for me isn't just the frustration that we feel in trying to bring someone around to our point of view, but I think it's, it's also the ethics of what it is we demand of them to demonstrate that they've relinquished, say, a wrong position. So, so many times an expression of our egotism is that we want some act of recantation. We want someone right. yep. to lose face, whereas I think maybe part of the ethics of disagreement is giving our interlocutor, the person who slowly, gradually, through tact and persuasion and flattery and, <laughs> and, and seduction or whatever else, has come to understand, well, maybe what I thought was true isn't quite right. Maybe I'm seeing things the wrong way. But we need to give them various ways of, say, doing below-the-surface acknowledgments, um, small concessions that allows them to keep their sense of self and their sense of their own reputation intact, uh, but that also allows them to, say, accommodate themselves somewhat to a point of view to which they believe themselves always to be opposed to. I mean, that's, that's but, a really interesting point. I think that Arno and Nicole don't see that as the goal of disagreement. I mean, when you look at their remarks about the epistemic value of disagreement, they tend to be about oneself. So that it tends to be a therapeutic of the self. And I'll get back in a second to your comment about how they, how you can provide the conditions for your interlocutors to save face, because I think their remarks on that are rather amusing. Um, but when they talk about the epistemic benefits of disagreement, they tend to be for oneself. I mean, at no point is the goal of that disagreement to to convince the other person. This isn't a persuasive exercise. This is uh, an exercise for the self. So when they talk about the epistemic benefits of disagreement, they tell us that one of the benefits of disagreement is that it can stimulate our passions of inquiry. When I'm in my office and thinking about some issue, I'm less likely to articulate all the reasons that I have for that view. And yet when I'm giving an academic paper and maybe in the q and I'm beginning to articulate the reasons for my belief because that discussion has stimulated my curiosity um, and my love of truth. So one of the benefits of disagreement is that it can stimulate our curiosity and encourage us to seek if we don't have them or articulate if we do the reasons that we have for our beliefs. And the second thing that they think is really valuable about disagreement is that it gives us insights into other people's minds. So it's an opportunity to recognize the kinds of reasons that have persuaded our interlocutors. So if we're talking to um, someone about some issue and it turns out we don't um, we don't agree with them, we can see what it what reasons they have for holding their beliefs. And that's that's a good position to be in. It's, it's good to know what are the kinds of arguments that have moved our opponents, um, and maybe in part so that we can go on to persuade them. Um, but lastly, the epistemic benefit of disagreement is that it reveals confusions, the confusions that we have in our own positions. And can prompt us to seek after the truth if um, we recognise the limits of our understanding, you know, exhibit intellectual honesty and demonstrate a willingness to inquire, so a willingness to understand how we can um, improve our positions. But to get back to the point that you made, which is about how we can convince, um, how we can provide situations in which our um, interlocutors can save face, I know Nicole have a recommendation and it doesn't strike me as particularly effective. So they say that, you know, when 
someone's mistaken about something, the thing that you should do is reassure them that it's okay to be wrong. Um, so they say, they say, you know, it's it's a slight inconvenience to be mistaken, but you're competent in many other matters. Now, I can't see that being an effective strategy when um, when you're disagreeing with someone to say Laura, that, but it's okay to be mistaken. Laura, if, if they were more accommodating of a scientist of human nature like Montaigne, they would have understand the dynamics of real human relationships. <laughs> far better than they did. Oh, look, um, that's that's an entirely different episode. I think the Port Royalists' uncharitable reading of Montaigne is something that was always going to make you sad and, look, was always going to be mildly disappointing. Um, mm. We can't expect much from two cloistered academics, perhaps. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, we are going to have to leave it uh, for the show, but also for the year. I was, just as I was hearing you speak, I was reminded of a quote that is attributed actually to quite a lot of people that... I've never entered an argument without wishing that the truth was on the other person's tongue because that way I Mm. would learn something. Mm. That's a really interesting approach. It's Mm. a very difficult approach, I think, to actually live. Wonderful. imagine, because the idea is I don't come out of an argument I win enriched in any way. Mm. I'm a loser in that situation. I haven't benefited. Anyway, thank you. You've led us through all kinds of rich terrain and I had a conversation I wasn't anticipating at all and Merry Christmas to you <laughs> and to everybody with whom you're having disagreements over this festive season. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That's Laura Kotevska, lecturer in education in the Office of the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Sydney. We are done uh, on the minefield for the day and for the year, subject to reruns of favourite bits and best bits over summer. Um, that does mean, though, that we must really issue our parade of thanks for all the people that help us get this show to air. There are so many uh, that help us do this. We are basically the least of the puzzle. That's right. Um, and so it's important that these people do get acknowledged. Uh, they get they get one acknowledgement a year, Scott. That's basically it, apart from Sinead, who's frequently referenced as telling us off. Um, and uh, they deserve, frankly, far more than that. So how about you kick us off and I'll uh, bring it home. Yes, well, I will just say a very, very deep thanks to Sinead. We've described her in the past as our... Uh, scold as sometimes our muse. In fact, she is our conscience and she's (laughs) the reason that this show exists. We're very, very, very grateful to her. To the team here in Brisbane, where I am, Steve Fieldhouse, Ni Adepuibi, David White, Sai Raului. They are our Brisbane operators. How about there in Melbourne, Walid? Well, so many. Paul Penton, Matthew Crawford, Kerry Dell, Tim Simons, Ariel Gross, uh, Christy Miltiadu and Richard Gervin, who I should point out has retired. We will not be working with Richard ever again. He's a bit of a legend around these parts in the ABC and um, it's sad to see him. It was a shock to me that he was retiring. He had a massive smile on his face, so I think he was loving it, but um, I'm not sure the rest of us uh, love it quite so much. But thank you to all of those people. I've worked with them for so many years here now um, and they never disappoint, so thank you. And also in Sydney, we should note, we did a, a live broadcast at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Uh, You might remember Hamish Cavalieri and Russell Stapleton uh, were in control uh, of that one. And so thank you to them for that, because that is a fraud exercise, (laughs) that kind of outside broadcast. But that's it from us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Waleed. It's been a doozy of a year, but actually we've seen Mm. one another this year more than any other year, which is, um, I don't know. That's maybe a record we ought to beat next year. Well, okay. All right. We'll have to come up with contrivances to make that work. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you, dear listener, for following us throughout the year to whatever extent that you have. Um, That's it from us for the year. RN Summer kicks off next week. And so in the context of that, we'll bring you the best of the minefield from 2022. And with any luck, we'll see you with some new stuff for 2023. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.
Hello there, my name is Mark Fennell, and I'm sure you're digesting many big ideas after another episode of The Minefield, but I did just want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. It's my podcast. It's called Download This Show. Each week we bring together an expert panel to unpack the biggest issues in the world of technology, media and culture, from the boom and kind of bust of cryptocurrencies to the rise of electric cars, to trying to work out just what on earth is going on inside Elon Musk's head at any given point in time. We've got it all. So for all of your tech news, please download, download this show. You know, it's confusing. I get it. The show's called Download This Show. It's also kind of an instruction. Do so at your leisure. You'll find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.